This is a Cherish podcast, and I'm your host, Michael Boudreau. I'll be taking you for an inside look behind the glamorous facade of the interior design industry. At a time when every aspect of the business, from sourcing to trends to marketing to dealing with clients, is undergoing rapid change. Jonathan Adler is a phenomenon. His passion for pottery began at summer camp when he was 12, and even when he was studying art history at Brown, he couldn't stay out of the pottery studio at nearby Rhode Island School of Design. He sold his first collection of vases and vessels to Barney's, New York, and shortly thereafter, in 1993, he founded his firm that now produces furniture, accessories, rugs, and pillows, as well as lighting, and of course, more vases and vessels. Everything he makes is imbued with his wit, his love of color, his passion for fashion and popular culture, and his belief that beauty and joy are connected. His collections are now sold at 10 of his own stores in the U.S. and one in London, and at more than 1,000 retailers across the country, as well as on Cherish. And as if that were not enough, he has become a highly successful interior designer, a star on reality TV, and is the author of four books celebrating his happy, chic aesthetic. I'm so pleased he's here today to talk about his vision, his amazing saga, and what he sees ahead. Welcome, Jonathan. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. It's lovely to see you, albeit virtually. I know, because you're in Palm Beach, your beloved Palm Beach, I understand. I am. Every morning I wake up and I'm like, wait, I own palm trees? This is crazy. And it's a, quite a saga going from, you know, the Northeast. Like, and one of the things that I, I found so interesting when I was reading up on your bio, which I didn't know. I mean, I knew, obviously, a certain amount about you, Jonathan. But I, the, the fact that your father, who was a lawyer, also made pottery. I thought that, that was so interesting. Yeah, my dad, unfortunately, my late dad, he died mm-hmm. about 20, almost 25 years ago. But he, um, he was a really interesting guy. He was... Very, very intellectual. He was sort of part of this cohort of people who went to the University of Chicago in the mid-century, and he went when he was like 16, and it was all like Susan Sontag. And then he he was a brilliant artist and illustrator, and he went to law school. And then my mom, who had been working at Vogue in New York and had gone to Wellesley, they were sort of part of this very kind of groovy mid-century world, they got married and my dad was like, all right, now we're heading back to my tiny farm town, hometown, and welcome to Green Acres. So, and then my dad, who was sort of a successful lawyer and, you know, provided a nice upper middle class lifestyle, spent all of the time he wasn't working, making art. And as much as I would like to believe I'm a completely self-created, sui generis being, I'm really very much a product of my parents. There's a direct line. Yeah, it's in your blood. It's in my blood. Yeah, that's great. But one of what that was interesting to me is at the time when you started making and selling your pottery, ceramics and pottery at that time was kind of a rarefied world, shall we say? And I think, I imagine it was somewhat of a snooty world. I mean, everything had to be, you know, in America, it was like an art thing. You know, there was art pottery and all that. And you came along and I think you blew all of that up. So how did you think about your early work when you were making it? Was it just, this is what I want to do? Or was it sort of a conscious load of rebellion against some of the, shall we say, pretension of the arts and crafts world? Well, it is a codified world. And I'm sure people who are listening are not 
familiar with the ins and outs of the ceramic world. The ceramic world you see before you today, which is a world in which there it's quite celebrated, actually, in art circles. Kind of groovy potters are now like... Oh, I think ceramics are really having a moment again. Yeah, you know? they're having a moment. Um, so it's sort of, there's two things that make ceramics kind of prominent today. It's like the art ceramics is having a moment and the maker movement ceramics, like the Williamsburg ceramics, are also having a moment, none of which have any relevance to what I was doing. I started 30 years ago, and I sort of, in a funny way, even though people would never think of me as like a Brooklyn-y dude, I would like to think that (laughs) I had a small part in kind of making Brooklyn possible because I kind of became like this production potter making everything myself in a truly artisanal way almost 30 years ago when nobody was doing that. And at the time, yeah, ceramics, it was still bifurcated, albeit less relevant. Mm -hmm. There was a rarefied world of art ceramics, which was an incredibly insular world. It had no relevance to the art world writ large. And then there were sort of crafty potters making production stuff, none of whom were in any way relevant or (laughs) particularly successful, actually. So I guess the point is when I went in, I didn't really know what I was doing. It was a very, very low stakes world. It was absolutely irrelevant. And I didn't really have a plan at all other than to make groovy shit. And what I loved about your work right from the beginning was how witty it was and how much humor you got into you know, a simple vase, which is not easy. It's not, pottery is not considered a medium for comedy per se, but you had (laughs) charm and wit and, you know, your breast vases and all of that, your lips, all. Was that something that just you wanted to express that and you were going to do it no matter how? It's a really great question. And it's something that I think about and grapple with a lot. I hope that my work feels very, very light and lively, which is not in any way, shape or form who I am as a person. I'm quite the opposite, actually, but there are elements of me, I suppose there are elements of me that are, you know, a little bit glib, I hope, witty. The idea of infusing content and wit into design is something I think about a lot, and it's a very, very challenging space to occupy, because you don't want anything to be, like, wacky. You know, it doesn't want to be, like, Mrs. Roper's outfits from Three's Company. You want it to be, have a base of unimpeachable chicness and just a little whisper of wit or content. And so that's that's a balance that I think about a lot and it's hard to strike. As for why that became part of my oeuvre, I guess it's because I am culturally voracious. I'm an innately postmodern person in all of its different aesthetic meanings, meaning like I came up in an era in which sampling and quotation and postmodern architecture were all the rage. That famous Love and Rockets song, No New Tale to Tell, Mm -hmm. which was sort of about, at least in my mind, it was about the fact that it had all been done before. And for some people, I guess that's a sort of creatively crippling idea. For me, I found it to be an extraordinarily creatively liberating idea. The idea had all been done before, and it was just up to me to sort of play with history and all of the past was mine to play with. And in a low stakes world like pottery, I could do whatever I want. It didn't matter. You had nothing to lose. 
and nothing to lose. Right. Not much to gain either, right. quite frankly. <laughs> At the beginning, I, I'm sure it wasn't easy, yes. Oh, dude, I was like a broke-ass, unemployed 27-year-old who was sort of eking out a meager living teaching night classes at a pottery studio in Hell's Kitchen, sort of asking my parents for shekels de temps en temps. And then I got an order and and I thought, all right, cool, I'll make pots, but I will be living a life of penury. And at the time I thought, that's fine. I'll surrender to penury if I at least get to express myself. Right. Cut to who owns palm trees? This guy. Yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. It's quite <laughs> a turnaround and it's really exciting. Because, you know, I do think in terms of design per se and decorating especially and what, you know, charm and wit are undervalued in our society, I think. And it's something that, I, you, you know, you have brought to the forefront, but I think it's still there's this sense that that's not so important to one's life, but I think it really is. And, you know, I've, yeah. I've been so impressed by your success and so heartened by it. Oh, heart emoji. Yeah. Um, I really, really do appreciate you saying that. And I feel seen finally. Um, thank well, you so you've much. You've been seen by a lot of people, John. I've been but, seen. You know. <laughs> um, it's funny. The idea of charm is something that my husband, Simon Dune, and I mm-hmm. have actually been talking about a lot. He wrote a great series of articles probably about 10 years ago for Slate magazine mm-hmm. called Charm Offensive about the idea of charm. And it's an underconsidered and really significant part of life. I, to me, the idea of charm is about a lightness of touch. It's about being self-deprecating and not taking yourself too seriously. And I do think no tea, no shade to our beloved world of decorating, but I think it's often a charmless space, a space in which people try to be overly serious and Mm -hmm. overly grown up. Like I look at a lot of interiors and Sometimes I think, wait, were you ever even a child? Like, I think a lot of people in, and I don't mean to, I really don't mean to throw shade at my no. uh, beloved design world, because mm-hmm. of course I am very supportive of everyone's aesthetic journey. I would just exhort people to remember a sense of charm, lightness of touch, and a little bit of humor. Yeah. And I think that is missing, and it's something that that I try to infuse. Yeah. Now, I want to talk a little about your inspirations, because obviously, like you were saying, you grew up in a sort of a hip, artsy, mid-century family. And then when you were starting out, like, you know, postmodernism was big, that sort of pastiche, Philip Johnson kind of thing, Memphis. Were those things that you were aware of, that you responded to, or? Yeah, I was obsessed with the history of design. Mm -hmm. I've always been a very connoisseurial person, and I think that's an incredibly important part of being a designer or an artist or whatever. I feel like you should really know in great detail all the source material so that if you're breaking rules, you know what the rules are. If you're referring to something, you know what you're referring to something. And I think that one should be incredibly informed and analytical about how to explain what you're doing. And yeah, so in terms of inspiration and design, the movements you just spoke about, postmodernism, Memphis, they were all very meaningful to me. But I think what, I think one of the things that I didn't really know much about when I started my journey was the more fluffy side of decorating and design. Meaning when I was in school studying art history at university and then studying pottery, 
at RISD after college, the reference points were very highfalutin. Mm-hmm. Like the in making pottery, the only world that was encouraged at RISD was a sort of fine art ceramics world. The idea of decorating was completely alien to me. I barely even knew decorators existed, mm-hmm. and it would have been completely looked down upon. And I think when I was starting off as a potter in my mid-20s, I was going through this incredibly intense love affair with the world of decorating and design that I had never been exposed to. I was incredibly connoisseurial and well-informed about the oat art and Mm -hmm. design world in an extremely academic way, but I wasn't really familiar with David Hicks or Billy Baldwin or any of those, any of those people. And so it was this moment in my life when suddenly I went, I would go to the strand every day, the beloved New York used bookstore and buy cheapo decorating books from the mid-century, from David Hicks, from all these different people. And it was sort of like this incredible moment of surprise and wonder at this magical world of fun and style and decorating. It was the idea of infusing style into art was something that in my fancy world wasn't really present. So I know that's a strange question, but yeah, it was... It was a journey of discovery for me about decorating. Right. And it's so interesting that you learned about it from going to the Strand. And, you know, like I I always say, I learned about decorating from reading the magazines. You know, it wasn't something that was taught. When we studied art, you know, I studied art history as well. But you, you did it from a very connoisseur, curatorial, timeline sort of way. But the fact that people in Europe were living these glamorous lives day to day, or even in, you know, a lot in America as well. It was like, not what I grew up with. And it just felt so appealing to me. And I could see how, as a struggling pottery person, that became so inspiring to you. Yeah, it really was. Because it was, again, pottery in particular was a world in which those references were were nowhere to be seen. And it, it's probably, to young people, they probably wouldn't even know what the hell we're talking about. But the, like when I graduated from Brown, the idea of going into decorating or design or fashion was like, what? That's not a thing. It never would have even crossed my mind. I didn't know it existed. And so in a strange way, even though I'm incredibly, I am connoisseurial and to some degree, I would say I, I've become an, a cultural insider. I really started out as a naive. I was very much an outsider uh, with no access to any of these worlds. And though, of course, I had, you know, a, again, a highfalutin educational background, I was an outsider. Right, right. Now, I'd love it if you talk a little bit about how you went from like you're selling your first collection of Barneys to like becoming who you are. Capsule sort of sense of the narrative here. Bro. It has been an odyssey. <laughs> I an know. Extraordinarily unexpected and a very bumpy odyssey. Mm-hmm. I'll try to make it quick. When I first got my first order from Barney's, as I told you, I was naive. I didn't even know anything about business. I was a true moron. I didn't know to include an invoice in my order. But eventually, I figured it out. I realized early on that the cheapest resource I had was me and my blood, sweat, and tears. Ironically, I taught 
night classes at a pottery studio called Mud Sweat and Tears, just because potters love puns. Sorry. And <laughs> I uh, remember anyway, Mud Sweat and Tears. I, yes, of course. Um, shout out to Mud Sweat and Tears. Thank you. It was a very, very long and tortured odyssey. The one thing I'll say that I think is kind of interesting was that I was very inspired by the idea of fashion. Again, I was not an insider in the fashion world, but I recognized that fashion designers were always coming up with new collections every season. They were always like, especially during the time of postmodernism and the Todd Oldhams and Isaac Mizrahi's and everyone were very relevant. They would say, this season, it's about blah, blah, blah. This season, it's about da-da-da. And that creative paradigm was completely different from anything I had seen in the craft or art world, for that matter, in which in the craft or art world, you're really supposed to come up with a style and then just like keep doing the most minute little tweaks here and there to make sure that your look is identifiable. And I saw that as an incredibly creatively stultifying approach to creativity. And so when I elected to enter the low stakes world, assuming I was entering a world of penury, I was like, well, at the very least, I should be creatively fulfilled. And so, so yeah, that was an, a very important idea to me, the idea of constant reinvention. Shout out to Madonna mm-hmm. and my forever muse. And yeah, so fashion. Because yeah. it was not about getting a Jonathan Adler look and then slight tweaks of it, the whole thing, you know, I mean, a lot of artists think they have to be sort of timeless or above trends and they're not susceptible. They have this personal vision that they're going to pursue at any cost. And, you know. Yeah. Well, I think people who said disco sucks missed out on the party. I think you should engage with whatever is happening in culture. And that's kind of part of life. When, I, As I've said many times on this podcast already, mm-hmm. knowing the art world as I did and knowing the ceramic art world, I always saw that in becoming a, a fine artist, I think, can be very creatively constipating because the way to create value in art is through scarcity of output. You really can't be too prolific and you can't have too wide a bandwidth in your art or else it won't have any value. And while I understand that can be lucrative, it can make you memorable and noteworthy, having a very, very clear style from which you sort of vary very slightly. I thought that that would be very creatively stultifying to me. So I wanted to create a world in which whatever I was interested in, I could try to engage with and I think even though a lot of my work has, like I work in myriad idioms and styles and vibes, I hope that uh, in retrospect, one can look at the sort of breadth of my work and at least see some through lines uh, that make it me, even if it's not immediately visually apparent. No, and I think that's true. I mean, I can look at a pillow and I say, oh, that looks... And maybe it's not you. It could be somebody ripping you off because now you are being ripped off on occasion. But, you know, I would look and say, oh, that's very Jonathan Adler. Do you know? Okay. There's a sensibility, I think. We're taking a quick break to fill you in on some exciting news. Cherish now ships to Canada. We now have hundreds of thousands of chic and unique items ready to ship 
to our Canadian customers. Shop our favorites and join in the fun. And stay tuned for more announcements and even more offerings by visiting Cherish.com. That's C-H-A-I-R-I-S-H dot com. Cherish.com. And now back to the show. I'd love for you to talk about when you first moved beyond pottery and started making, you know, furniture, other accessories. Was that inspired by somebody asking you to help them like design their apartment or something? How did you go from the the pottery per se into your larger aesthetic? Well, the first thing is that I realized I was going to be broke and there were few (laughs) opportunities. So I thought to myself, any opportunity that comes along, I should just say yes to. So I'm a true yes man. And I'm not just talking um, in the bedroom. Mm -hmm. I am talking. (laughs) um, Philosophy of life. Yeah, philosophy of life. May, it might it extend to the bedroom, perhaps. Um, I'm not saying I didn't have a you know slightly misspent youth, but so I and more power to you, right? It is a good question. How does one go from being a production potter? The answer is slowly, and it wasn't an overnight and easy situation, which I think is very important for young people to realize that I think these days things seem so easy and instantaneous and Typically, they ain't. My journey certainly was not instantaneous. I was a full-time production potter for about five years. I didn't take a day off. I worked like a million hours a week. I'd rollerblade to my pottery studio, get there at 7 a.m. and leave at 11 p.m. after like hearing all things considered on NPR about 10 times that day. And that went on for years. And then finally, I was whinging to my poor husband who would have to, when I got home, he would have to like, just rub moisturizer into my hands because they were yeah, so dried out from all the clay. Um, I was like, I'm never going to do anything. He's like, you gotta, you gotta like find some help. You gotta find somebody to help make you help you make your pottery. And I found a great workshop in Peru uh, through a series of happy accidents. And I was sort of like Jesus, take the wheel. And I went there for a couple months and and sort of transferred my production, thereby freeing up tons of time. And I thought, all right, finally, Jesus has taken the wheel. Now, right. now I can think about what my next step is rather than just thinking about, you know, making the mugs for the mm-hmm. Saks Fifth Avenue order. Yeah, scaling thought, up is always hard. Bro. Yeah. And I, I think that a lot of people who sort of now the idea is to like come up with a business plan and know what everything's going to be and blah, blah, blah. And I'm happy to say that was not at all my journey. And I think there's something to be said for pushing things to their beyond breaking point before taking the next step and scaling up. Like, I don't believe in being overly prepared. You know, I think you should develop a need, an organic need for growth rather than be overly prepared for growth without it um, organic. Anyway, whatever. And you need uh, to be open to serendipity, I think. Serendipity and saying yes to everything. So serendipitously, I found this pottery studio and then I found I had free time. And I remember very clearly talking to my husband and being like, he's like, I was like, I have all this free time. He's like, cool. What are you going to do with it? I was like, I don't know. I got to come up with more stuff to do. And he's like, (laughs) well, what are you trying? What beyond what your pottery looks like? What are you trying to say with your pottery? And I thought that was a profound question. And I said, you know, I believe that design should be unimpeachably chic, but it should, you know, I sort of came up with all the different things that I believe in. And I even wrote a manifesto. We were having dinner at this, uh, restaurant in Long Island and I, like over between salad and 
the main course, I wrote a manifesto that, dare I say so, is quite legendary. It was a moment. And it was a serendipitous and spontaneous thing. And it's so I had the workshop in Peru. And I thought, all right, if my work is going to be about being unimpeachably chic, about craft mixed with style, that ethos can translate into other materials. So I designed a line of pillows. I found some great weavers in Peru. And then, you know, I had pillows and I thought, well, I need a chair to put a pillow on. I'm, you know, if I'm making a pot, why not make a lamp? If I make a lamp, I need a table. So it was very slow and organic. And then one other huge break was a friend of mine had bought a really glamorous mid-century iconic house on Shelter Island. And she asked me to decorate it. And I was like, okay. And I figured it out. And that kind of opened me up to the world of being an inferior desecrator. (laughs) By the way, I am... I did this TV show with our beloved friend, Margaret Russell. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course. Love, and right. um, shout out to Margaret Russell. Yes, love. shout out. To- and in like I used to kick people off on the show, and my tagline was, see you later, decorator. And <laughs> a lot, I remember a very fancy uh, decorator whose name I won't mention threw a hissy fit at me and said, how dare you say decorator? We are not decorators. We are interior designers. And I was like, all right, slow your roll. But like, I don't know. I don't really care what you call me. Right. But there was that moment where there, people were very concerned about, I think, not being taken seriously or, you know, then not being considered a housewife who, you know, goes to the D&D and picks out some fabrics or whatever. And, you know, but that's just all about insecurity. And I, I guess I've, I've never understood the impulse to create a fancy name for yourself. You know, I, I'm perfectly fine to be called a potter or, or a decorator or a desecrator, whatever. There's that famous Nancy Mitford, I think, wrote the article about you versus non-you, mm-hmm. which anyone who hasn't read it should. It's a great or should at least familiarize themselves with right. it. But she sort of asserted that if you're going to use a euphemism, always go down instead of up. You know, don't call yourself a visual merchandiser. Call yourself a window dresser. Don't call yourself an interior designer. Call yourself a decorator. You should know what you are inside and not worry about people recognizing you as such because it's, in my opinion, unnecessary and kind of be it's charming to be self-deprecating. Right. Exactly. And again, back to the importance of charm. So to get back to the narrative here, you decorated your friend's house, which, as you know, I mean, I'm not a designer myself. I know how complicated it is. So was this a shock to you to realize, oh, my God, I not only have to design all this stuff, I have to have it made, I have to have it shipped, I have to make sure that, you know, the house functions. Was that difficult for you or was something that was innate? I think that my years of experience as a potter were invaluable because they opened my mind to the importance of logistics and the importance of thinking everything through and having a existing in kind of a fugue state in which you're constantly thinking if this then that if this then that because you were running a business as well as creating pottery right yeah i was running a business i was making pottery and i would i didn't sleep for about five years of my life because i was like all right is that um porches and bungalows order ready? And if so, did I make all the, you know, there's that teapot there where the lid broke, I need to make it like, I was just going through every eventuality in my mind. And I think that prepared me very well 
for the world of decorating because it is very logistical. You know, everything is very logistical. I think I come from a family of kind of intellectuals, none of whom have a single intellectual bone and single logistical bone in their body. They're all extremely disconnected from the physical world. And being a potter, being a dude with mud, air, fire, and water has made me very primitive and very, very physical. And I think that that's really important because it, it exposes you to the idea of the idea of logistics, the idea of physical eventualities and the idea of what, if this, then that. And oddly, for some, that's a very important skill and approach to life if one is going to be a decorator, because there's a lot of if this, then that. If pink, then what's, you know, how's it going to look with the rug? Like it's, it's everything from will the fabric come in time to if you do this color or scale, how will it impact the other elements in the room with which it's in dialogue? Right. You have to respond. You have to be responsive and flexible. And- yeah, responsive, flexible, but also really think about the ramifications of each and every decision you make. So is, is and I know you keep doing it and you've done hotels, et cetera. Is interior design something that you like to do? Is it, is it you know, because it's more complicated than if you're in your studio designing an object. It's a lot more interaction with other people and factors, as we were just saying. So is it? It's something I'm very ambivalent about, if I'm being honest. Like, it's, I think it's really important. I think it's been very, very important for my business. When I do a great job and I get to design a great space, I absolutely love it. I, however, I'm not necessarily super great at working with other people. <laughs> I've, I've, <laughs> I've created. I love that you admit that. Oh my God, beyond. You know, again, in, in as much as people might know who I am, presumably people listening to this know who I am. And, and would assume that I am very connected and insidery. I'm really not. I'm an incredibly insular, incredibly, incredibly insular person. I and my design journey is very, very insular. I'm not at like fancy decorator parties ever. My posse is my old school posse. Like I'm not I never really entered the world of fancy decorators, which very much is a social world. Um and I no again, no tea, no shade towards mm-hmm. it. Like I love, you know, I've, I know a ton of decorators and people in the world and I think they're all fantastic and love them, but it's just not my world. So that's not really my world. It's not, I'm not so great at working the crowd. I'm very, very insular. And when groovy decorating projects come up and people really want me to do them and I think they're going to be very creative, I of course uh, do it and it's fantastic and I love it. It's just got to be a good it's got to be the right fit. Yeah. To come to you. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a tough biz. Right. Oh, yeah. And, and speaking of tough biz, I'd love to talk to you about your shops. Like when you opened your first shop, how did that influence? Because I presume that when you opened your first store, you started interacting more with your customers. <laughs> yes, I did. Very much. And opening a shop was a very improbable journey for me. As I said, I kind of came from intellectual stock. Nobody was like a merchant or nobody had any business sense. And my parents were also very risk averse. So at first I said, you know, I think I want to open a shop. And they were like, don't. And I was like, got it. I shall. <laughs> um, thanks for the... So rebellious you yeah, were. <laughs> woo, that's me, rebel. And 
having a shop was one of the most incredibly mind expanding and uh, work expanding things ever for so many different ways. I've just, I just learned so much. It gave me just a space to continue to refine and hone my message. And also this was, I guess I opened my first shop in probably whenever I did late nineties, like 99, 2000, whatever. Uh, and you know, it wasn't like a technology period. And I remember being in my shop working behind the counter, which I would do a lot. And it was early cell phones. And I heard some chick on her cell phone having a conversation while perusing my oeuvre and saying, yeah, yeah, I'll be home at seven. Let's go Brussels sprouts. Um, yeah, I'll go pick up the dog. Where? Oh yeah, I'm just at Jonathan Adler right now. And I was like, she's at what? She's at where? I'm a place, I'm a thing. And yeah, so a retail shop was an incredibly important moment in making me a thing. You know, at the time, there was, I couldn't have a website, I couldn't have a this, but suddenly if I could have a shop, suddenly it was like, I'm at Jonathan Adler. And I was like, yeah, you're at Jonathan Adler. Boom. Yeah, it's cool. It was cool. great. Um, but of course now brick and mortar stores are being challenged, obviously by the internet. So do you still find that it's important that you have them? I don't know what you're talking about, brick and mortar <laughs> stores being challenged. <laughs> I've never heard of such a notion. Um <laughs> It's a great question, and the as a seasoned, aka old businesswoman, I can tell you that the that business paradigms are constantly shifting, and there's always pendulum swings. And one minute it'll be like retail, retail, retail. The next minute it'll be like get rid of your brick and mortar. Um, so I've seen all them. I've seen all them shifts in my um, during my years, and I, I think. My ultimate conclusion for now is that one should be kind of in every space, but very, very judiciously, you know, do everything in a, do everything really well, but be careful. You know, I, I, at one point I overexpanded my retail footprint because I was responding to the paradigm and I very carefully and industriously or sort of pared back my footprint to just the the best stores. And that was a great move. I'm sorry I had expanded as much as I did. Um, but now I think we have a very good and very sustainable footprint of retail stores, which to some degree function as marketing for online sales. And I think it's a world in which one has to be available to people wherever and whenever you can grab them. Right. Well, it's interesting that so many internet brands now are opening stores because I think for exactly what you're saying, I think it's great marketing for internet sales and and it, it allows people to see your vision, you know? Yes. And I think that, that they understand it better if they can see it. And, and, and in New York, at least, you're starting to see return of more home stores, which I find very encouraging. But I wanted to ask you about what you see ahead, because your aesthetic, and I mean, you know, partly because you and Simon, you have Palm Springs and Florida. There's a very sort of colorful, almost tropical sense people have of your aesthetic. And I think that's, really, you know, mid-century, which you have, you know, blown up and blown out and made it so much more fun and less pretentious than it could be, all of that. But how do you see your aesthetic moving ahead? What are you looking at now? 
Well, it's funny. I, I think in my own life, I sort of express a range of sensibilities. And, you know, I think you can slice and dice my collection to create, you could create the most minimalist, austere. Oh, and, or place the most under. urban space. I didn't yeah, mean to create, buy. No, 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 palm trees. Like, no, no, no. I'm just, right. just, right. I, no, it's good for me to think about. So I think you could create a minimalist, austere, monastic look. Mm-hmm. A lot of my stuff is very minimal. I think as a product designer, I'm truly a minimalist. Mm-hmm. I, when designing products, I strive to use an economy of gesture to communicate what I want to communicate. I hope you, you know, if one looks at my work, and I think you should look at my work in <laughs> tremendous detail, um, I hope you will see that um, that my my stuff is minimal communicative. For me, design is a process of stripping down. I start with an idea and then I try and get rid of extraneous gestures so that whatever I'm doing can be communicated as clearly as possible. So so I think that my products are very, very minimalist. My overall design aesthetic is maximalist in the sense that I believe in mixing things with abandon. I think that I'm a natural eclecticist and I think that if you, I hope that my idea for my work and my world is that you can go into a Jonathan Adler shop or the site and create a space which looks like you have spent a lifetime curating the best of the best from all over the world and all different sensibilities and times and um, create a space in which you are, uh, in which you show yourself to be a connoisseurial, fun, charming person. So it's really a, a sense of designed eclecticism, you know, one-stop shop for designed eclecticism. And I think that as for, I think that that overarching idea, designed eclecticism, gives me tremendous runway to and leeway to do whatever I want and to just keep trying, playing, expanding, as long as it's sophisticated. I hate that word, but I'll use it. Sophisticated connoisseurial, well-designed, and charming. And one of the things I, I wanted to ask you about was, you know, now there is this sort of resurgence of ceramics and pottery, and there's new respect for it. I mean, is that something you find, you know, at the same time, as we've talked on several of our podcasts, there seems to be a shrinking of the artisan class. You know, there's not enough artisans, there are not enough makers. All the designers are complaining about this and how our culture doesn't support makers and, and encourage them and treat them with respect. So at the same time, but, you know, especially in ceramics, now e- e- virtually every house that you see in a design magazine has a collection of ceramics. It's, like, <laughs> it's this moment. And I, I'd love to know what you think. Are you like, Damn, I you know I I you know, I should get some credit for this, or do you you're just happy for everybody? It's okay. Of course, I'm happy for everybody. If there's a world in which makers are getting acclaimed, that's fantastic. Um, it is. I, I chuckle when you say it because I know so few people like that. I me even know that 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 I'm a potter. Like I'll, they'll be like, "What do you do?" I'm like, "I'm a potter," and they'll be like, "Oh, I didn't know you made pottery." And I'm just like, "Ugh, I've really screwed up." <laughs> <laughs> Me or my publicist, Ryan, if you're listening, I blame you. I've really screwed up um, telling my story. Yeah, I don't, I think in as much as people think of me, they think I'm like a foulard wearing decorator, little realizing that I'm like a gritty, earthy 
Potter at mm-hmm. heart. Anyway, I'm thrilled that it's happening. I think it's really cool. I I think it's great that people have a platform to be makers, ceramicists. If I've had anything to do with that, I'm thrilled to have been a part of it. And it's really, really cool that that's um, happening. Yeah. You know what? The other thing I love about your work, Jonathan, is that you, you know, that as we were saying, you've never taken it too seriously. You've never become this grand poobah, you know, even everything you make still has elegance and sophistication, a word we don't like, but it's there. But it also has a touch of humor. It has a, a little drop of your personality, which I think is what makes it so strong and so appealing to people, you know? And I, yeah, I think a little drop of my personality is just the right amount. <laughs> <laughs> I always say, I always say to not know me is to love me. And I think that's true. And I think that oh, that's- Oh, you're so you modest. Know, well, no, I think that it's funny what you like- there's this very famous English historian called Paul Johnson who wrote a book called Intellectuals in which he sort of talks about how people's public persona and their private persona are completely at odds often. Uh, most notably, what's his face? Um, Rousseau. He of you know, the idea that humans were innately good and that they were destroyed by society. He was just a monster. He was an absolute monster. You know, Karl Marx, man of the people, had a slave his whole life. And whilst I would never put myself in that level of import, (laughs) I think the same truth applies to me. I seem very lighthearted and fun and cheery. I'm anything but. I'm very- You're a tortured artist. I kind of am. I don't yeah. know how. To, there's just a dissonance between my affect and my. Yeah, but if you weren't a, if you weren't a little tortured, you wouldn't be producing as much as you did. You wouldn't have created as much stuff and come up with as many good ideas as you have. Yeah, you got to be really self-critical, really analytical to get something to be good. Because, like, not unlike how writing is rewriting, design is redesigning. It's about. It's about looking at whatever you've done with a sense of absolute self-loathing and saying, like, why am I so awful? What did I do now? And trying then to roll up your sleeves and fix it. Right. Well, I guess what we really hope is that you will go on loathing yourself, Jonathan, (laughs) and coming up with continued great products, great designs, and really bringing a lot of joy and pleasure to so many people, you know, and I think it's so great. Well, my my self-loathing and my um, self-torture are here to stay, so stay tuned for lots (laughs) more stuff. Great. Well, I want to thank you so much for being on, and I want to thank everyone for listening to The Cherished Podcast. You've been listening to the Cherish podcast, brought to you, of course, by Cherish, which was recently voted by the readers of USA Today as the best place to shop online for furniture and home decor. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend or colleague. Or better yet, go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We appreciate your help in spreading the word. And we would love your ideas for future episodes. Please email us at podcast at cherish.com. The Cherished Podcast is produced by Britta Muller and engineered by Hangar Studios in New York. Until next time.